Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Few people were deeper into the Watergate cover-up than President Nixon's White House counsel, John Dean. Then he flipped. He was a star witness for the congressional investigation. And while some Watergate conspirators had religious conversions in prison, Dean left prison with a commitment to teaching in classrooms and beyond the lessons of the scandal and advocating for better government. I recently had the opportunity to talk with him in front of a live audience at NYU's Skirball Center. Tell us the jobs you had in government prior to you becoming counsel to the president. I was at the House Judiciary Committee. It was my first job in government. And uh, from there, I went to a commission that was revising the federal criminal code. I didn't study enough while they were working on that. <laughs> I have a question about that. I, 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 <laughs> I then went from there to become the Associate Deputy Attorney General uh, in the Nixon administration at the outset of the administration. And while there, working in justice, I was invited to become counsel of the president. Who invited you? Richard Nixon. Nixon. Someone's making a recommendation to him, or he knew you personally? Well, they, they sent a feeler out. In fact, I, over the years, in going through the archives, I haven't collected at all, but I have collected bits and pieces. I didn't realize they were doing reconnaissance on me for many, many months before they asked me to come over to the White House. Questions like, could I really be loyal to Nixon? Literally. Literally. What, what did you think that they saw in you that they thought you were a Nixon man? <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, that's one of the mysteries to me, is, is why someone as young and un inexperienced as I was was given that job. I was given, actually, the title. I wasn't given the job initially. Uh, John Ehrlichman had been White House counsel. Uh, he was the initial White House counsel. He gave up the title. He didn't give up the job. Uh, and I think Nixon throughout really relied on Ehrlichman for his legal advice. Did you come from a Republican family? Your dad, was he, was, was he an executive at Firestone or he worked at Firestone? Uh, my father uh, spent 18 years at Firestone and then went out. He was, a, uh, he was a turnaround expert. He would go into a plant, a manufacturing plant, could see why it wasn't working. He was a numbers man as well as a mechanical engineer from Carnegie Mellon and could straighten these plants out. So did you have some kind of Republican credentials throughout your... My, my family was not particularly political. Uh, Were you? I actually uh, became interested in politics when I was in prep school, and my roommate happened to be the son of a United States senator. And we would go up to Washington and stop and see uh, Senator Goldwater, uh -huh. Uh, his son and I, and uh, <laughs> and that's when I was became interested in in that world. Uh, I can still recall and, and visualize walking down those marble halls uh, with the senator leading the way, taking us on a tour here or there, and saying, "This is pretty impressive." He was also, I thought, an impressive guy. He had, a, uh, he had one of the first Thunderbird 
Ford Thunderbirds. I was at that age just thinking about getting a driver's license and uh, we'd ride around in his car that was more like the cockpit of an airplane. He was a ham radio operator and could also talk to any airbase he wanted to talk to from his uh, Thunderbird. Now, when you finally go to the White House as a counsel to the president, what was your sense of what the job was and what did you discover the job actually was? One of the things that was really strange is I was never given much guidance as to what the White House counsel did. When Ehrlichman was there, he never really told me anything about it. Uh, when Haldeman interviewed me before I went in to have the president say, would you take the job, uh, he said, I, I suppose you will just do whatever you lawyers do. He wasn't a lawyer. And uh, that was about the guidance I got. So, and what, and what, were, what were some of the things you did? What were some of the things you worked on? You started well, the job what year? I, I, when I started the job, it was a lot of... I, I realized that Ehrlichman was sending my office all the minutiae, things like clearing people for conflict of interest, uh, preparing us... For example, there was no staff manual when I got there, so my office prepared a staff manual to tell people, you know, what forms letters had to be in, as well as uh, the, the fact they couldn't contact independent regulatory agencies. They had to go through our office or uh, not at all. Sort of just basic mechanics. And uh, I told, initially I, I was a solo, and I think they were sort of testing to see who I was and what would go on. And uh, it wasn't, uh, it was about six months before they let me hire an assistant. And uh, I needed the help because there was a lot of work. In fact, today in the archives, the White House Counsel's Office for the Nixon presidency is one of the largest uh, collections of papers. Well, thank God you weren't doing the conflict of interest work in the White House now. You'd be dead from exhaustion, <laughs> uh, apparently. <laughs> But, uh, and you need about 500 either, assistants. Either that anyway. or there is no clearance at all and no work <laughs> right, at all. Right. They probably just closed that office this, this <laughs> term, you know. We're not going to bother with that uh, conflict. Of just send them home. Uh, uh, but, uh, but, but describe for me, because I think a lot of people, you get into that kind of cult of personality with someone like Nixon. And uh, what, what was it like to work with him? What was he like? Because it's just nothing like being in the presence of the person themselves rather than through the filter of the media. What was he like when you worked with him? You know, when I went over there, I, I was old enough and been around enough to know there was a Tricky Dick, but I believed in the 68 campaign that Tricky Dick had matured. He was now a former vice president who really understood how government operated, and he would be a great senior statesman type person. Uh, that's the image that was put out. The White House staff itself was operated so tightly uh, that very few on the staff actually knew what the president did and how he did it and when he did it. Uh, it was more they read what was in the paper that was being cranked out by everybody else as to the image of the president. I, for example, really other than in group meetings and, and uh, just pass-through meetings, had no dealings with him until eight months after the arrests at the Watergate. And then I'll have some 37, 38 meetings with him. You become uh, more useful to him once the issue what, arises. What happens is after his successful re-election, right. I, I have been reporting to either Holloman or Ehrlichman 
uh, everything I'm able to pick up about Watergate and the investigation and where it's going and what its implications are, and nothing looks good. Uh, at that point, Nixon decides rather than have uh, well, not at that point, but several months later in, in February, he decides rather than have Haldeman and Ehrlichman filtering what I have to say, he decides to deal directly with me. And uh, thankfully it was recorded. Right. <laughs> so, so when you, uh, so the, 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 the news breaks, the burglary breaks in what month of 72? June 17th of 72. June of 72. He's, he's overwhelmingly elected uh, uh, after that. And when you found out that these guys who had links to the White House or to the committee to reelect had broken into the DNC office at the Watergate Hotel, what did you make of it? Well, I happened to have been in Manila, uh, in the Philippines. How convenient. <laughs> or was it a double? First mistake was coming home. Uh, that's on June 19th, two days after the arrest, uh, I'm sent to interview... Gordon Liddy, who confesses to me. Uh, he says it's our men, my men. Uh, he, he, um, and when he said my men, what was his... Now, now Liddy was ex-FBI? Former FBI. Uh, and Hunt was ex-CIA. Ex-CIA. Uh, when he said my men, what, what was their they, official capacity? Well, I, I was, what he was explaining is that there was... On the morning of the 19th, the Washington Post knew no, more than we did at the White House as far as Watergate, and we, there was a big story that morning that uh, amongst those arrested was the chief of security for the re-election committee, uh, James McCord, which was a pretty good clue that it somehow involved the re-election committee. Uh, John Mitchell, the head of the re-election committee, the former attorney general, now director of the election committee, put out a statement saying, oh, we don't know anything about what these guys were doing. Yeah. They were freelancing on their own. Yeah. Well, it, it, it didn't take me very long to realize that that was uh, uh, baloney. Today, I know that the, really the conspiracy was, was hatched over that weekend and the decision to cover it up. And, and there was a real reason to cover it up for the White House, which I learned when talking to Liddy uh, on the morning of the 19th. In fact, I intercepted him rather than come to my office. I didn't want him in my office. Uh, but rather walk down 17th Street. And that's when he said, these are my men who, who did this. He said, I was foolish to use McCord, uh, who was uh, part of the re-election committee. Liddy himself was the general counsel of the finance committee of the re-election committee, where he was, that was his supposed principal responsibility, but he was running this on, on the side. And uh, on the way back up, he said two things that were uh, back up 17 trees were really quite startling. He said, you should know, John, that while I worked at the White House, uh, that Howard Hunt, who helped me get the men for this operation, and I did a, what he called a national security operation by breaking in Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office. Uh, what I didn't know at that time is that, that had been really authorized in writing by John Ehrlichman, uh, my predecessor, who wrote on a sheet uh, asking his approval, so long is not traceable to the White House. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, I didn't know that at that time. Anyway, I did go back and report to Ehrlichman what I had learned. The other thing that Liddy said on the way back up 17th Street, he said, I realize I've made a terrible error. And if anybody wants to take me out, just tell me what street explain, corner to be on. He, he, yeah, he literally said. He said, anybody wants to take me out, just don't do it at my house. I've got children there. What do you think was behind that? Why would he, I mean, other than his own having maybe a screw loose or something, why did he believe that the, the, the operation of the White House, the, gov, the executive branch of the government, would want to whack him on a street in Washington. Why? I have no idea. He just, he's just a little yeah. dramatic. It was probably a mistake not to. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> just to clarify. <laughs> and of course, the day he was shot, you were in Manila, right? You're right. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, the, no, no, the, no, explain to people, what were they after? It, it, it's taken a long time to assemble what they were really after because uh, no one really talked about it and it was kind of embarrassing. One of the reasons I'm convinced that Liddy was silent is because of the stupidity of all the activities that have been carried on. Uh, the, uh, for example, he, post-Watergate, acted like he was some James Bond type character who had been hired by the White House to come in and do these things. As the historical record shows, he's not quite at the Maxwell Smart level in most of his, his undertakings. Another uh, reference from our childhoods, if you don't know, <laughs> Maxwell Smart. Anyway, uh, what they were looking for, it appears to me, it appeared to me at the time, and I have since been even more convinced, it was a pure fishing expedition. They were just in there trying to find anything they could of a negative nature, and hopefully on Larry O'Brien, the chairman of the uh, Democratic National Committee. Um, so during the period where uh, you're called in now and you become pulled into this circle to help solve this problem, when does that commence? On the 19th. I'm the person who's in charge of finding out what's happening and keeping abreast of what, what's happening, talking to people in the Justice Department, talking to the FBI, talking to the re-election committee that has its own group of lawyers, and then bringing that information in. And what happened is the uh, re-election committee started calling on the White House for help. One of the interesting things is I've always been convinced that John Mitchell, who we know did authorize the Watergate break-in, he authorized the money, he authorized the plan, uh, he did it in Florida uh, with Jeb Magruder, who was his deputy, and Magruder then gave the orders. I'm convinced that Mitchell, from my initial conversations with him on the 19th, was prepared to step forward and say, hey, this happened on my watch. Uh, he also sent word to the White House over the weekend, stay away from and it. And deflect all the responsibility from the president. Take it all from and the short president. short-circuit everything that happened. That was the original plan. But then what happened is he, too, uh, got a briefing as to what Liddy had done and learned of the Ellsberg break-in, which he thought was as bad, if not worse, than what had happened at the Watergate. And he and, he and Ehrlichman, who had always had a strained relationship, they often in a room would talk to each other through me. They would turn to me and say, like the other person wasn't in the room. And that's how I slowly became the linchpin. You're like a marriage counselor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, became, I, that, that's, that's how I became the linchpin of this uh, conspiracy. When you're in a room with these guys, I only have a sense of them from uh, uh, archival footage, from the news and so forth. And they do seem like a pretty... 
not a very uh, lighthearted crowd, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, Haldeman and Ehrlichman and Mitchell, they seem like a, some pretty dark crowd in terms of, because I'm going to read a quote for you from, because uh, uh, you were on the commission uh, on reform of federal criminal laws right as the war on drugs was beginning. And then the next thing you know, you're intimately working with, in a room with Ehrlichman, who uh, said the following right before he died. He said the, the Nixon, about Nixon Republicans, he said that Nixon Republicans had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. We knew it couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. And, and he said, did we know we were lying about drugs? Of course we did. When you're in the room with these guys, I mean, do you get a sense that you're in Never heard that kind of talk. Right. It was, wasn't until I, years later, uh, my last book, I cataloged all of the Nixon-Watergate conversations. I heard on those tapes things I'd never heard those men say in front of me. Right. They were their own small unit that would talk about these things at a level uh, that I wasn't privy. There was some chilling stuff that, uh, and racist stuff that I'd never seen in Ehrlichman before right. in those tapes. Uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable record. No president's ever going to leave that behind again. When, uh, uh, well, <laughs> let's not be too hasty now. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. the, uh, You're hopeful. Right. <laughs> Well, we're going to get to the comparisons and contrasts in a minute. Both houses of the Congress were in Democratic hands at the time, correct? But it was a different Democratic Party. Of course. It was a party with Southern Democrats who were today Republicans. So it, it, it divided. He believed and, and held out the belief for a long time, I think, that he could, with a combination of Republicans and Southern Democrats, keep, a, uh, keep his office through a... Uh, an impeachment bill of impeachment in the House, if not defeating that, certainly not getting two-thirds of the Senate to vote against him for removal. So uh, it, it's a different Democratic Party. It's true it, it was not controlled by the South either. It was more, more moderate to progressives that did. And if you recall, it's very slow that the impeachment process starts uh, with Watergate. It isn't until he removes the special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, that uh, they take this seriously, that uh, while that in itself may not be an obstruction of justice or uh, an impeachment or a criminal offense, he had the power to do it, a lot of parallels with today. Right. Uh, he certainly uh, politically had made a terrible mistake. There were Republicans, obviously, on the Judiciary Committee and uh, in the Congress who were willing to vote for him. Slowly but surely, they did. Uh, they, 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 they were the, the moderates first and then... Finally, by the end, uh, when they heard the so-called smoking gun tape, uh, which showed Nixon had based his defense uh, up until the end on the fact he knew nothing of the Watergate cover-up until I had told him on March 21st in a conversation that was labeled the cancer on the presidency uh, conversation. Uh, he said that was the first he'd learned. Well, that was a pretty outrageous lie, and he got caught in it uh, just by really the special prosecutor fishing for a tape. Uh, and, 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 and what did and that find, tape say? And that tape showed him uh, telling Hall, or agreeing with Haldeman's plan to have the CIA block the FBI's investigation into Watergate. 
And that conversation with Haldeman takes place when? June 23rd. Right after the break-in. Right, six days Immediately after. after. Right. Uh, and, 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 and these are the tapes that he was forced to surrender, which he, he, that he was, did. That For was people the, who don't understand, he did surrender the tapes, other than the gap, the famous gap. There would have been an interesting constitutional crisis if he had said uh, to the Supreme Court, okay, I've got your ruling, I think it's wrong. And I, President, uh, I've got the troops, you come get the tapes. Right. This is my property. This is my okay. property. You're not entitled to have this property. And history would have been very different. As everybody knows, there's a famous gap. What is it, 18 minutes or something like 18 that? 18 and a half minutes 18, gaps. I was going to say 18 and it's a half a media, minutes. It's a media-invented event. So there was uh, no erasure at all? Uh, no. A strong man could press the record button uh, and cause the eraser. And it, there, the experts saw seven to nine effort to erase that material. Well, what, what do you think was, uh, was erased on those tapes? Has there ever been any speculation well, I, I, that satisfied you? No, because I, I've listened to the conversations that precede and follow. Nixon had a pattern of repeating things that were important or uh, sort of sensitive. They would come up in subsequent conversations. This is a very early conversation. This is on June 20th, his first conversation back. That's why it was subpoenaed. And uh, I think it was just a gaffe that resulted in that probably being erased. Uh, and it could have, it, the person that occurred to me that could have done it was somebody who had a terrible time opening those medicine bottles you press and turn. I'd see it in his mouth occasionally trying to get the cap off. Uh, he had trouble opening his drawers. He hadn't driven a car in years. This was a very foreign kind of machine. Right. Did Nixon order the breaking himself? No. No, he There's did not. no evidence of that. Not, There's no. no evidence that anybody in the White House knew. Uh, what's ironic, Alec, is that had the mission of the evening actually been accomplished rather than Liddy and his men being arrested, or Liddy's men being arrested, uh, it was traceable to the White House. Their mission that night was really to go plant a bug in McGovern's headquarters on Capitol Hill. The reason they didn't do that is they got arrested fixing the defective machinery uh, that they'd put in at the Democratic National Committee headquarters. You can trace back through tapes and Haldeman memos that Nixon gives an order to put a plant, a secretary or a volunteer or something like that, move it from Muskie to McGovern, not particularly uh, a wiretap. So as we come rolling into... 73, right, as he's, uh, uh, where things change dramatically for him. What kind of things is he asking you to do, and what was he like to work with there in that time? Jumping back to August 29th of, of 72, pre-election, he had a press conference, and one of the early questions he's asked is, Mr. President, given the fact your attorney general uh, is now the head of the re-election committee, and if somebody from the re-election committee was arrested in the DNC, why don't you appoint a, a special prosecutor? And he has his response all prepared, and he says, well, if, uh, first of all, the, the Congress is investigating this, the General Accounting Office is investigating it, uh, the FBI is investigating it, uh, but most importantly, my White House counsel, John Dean, has investigated this matter and found nobody presently employed in this administration had anything to do with this bizarre incident. 
This was the first I heard of my investigation. <laughs> uh, and so after that, uh, his press secretary, Ron Ziegler, called and said, John, do you have a copy of your report? I said, Ron, there is no report. Uh, he said, well, maybe there should be. And I said, well, I don't think so. Uh, anyway. He said, I don't think so. Why? Because I didn't want to lie. I didn't want to. You I, knew that they wanted you to doctor something. They, I, it was quite clear. They wanted they you want, to cover up with that yes, report. Yes, yes. What happens is when... We're going back to when I first start dealing with, with Nixon. Right. He starts on the report again that he wants a Dean report. Uh, he is convinced somehow this will make things go away. Uh, Ehrlichman makes it pretty clear that what he can do is have this report in his desk drawer and say, this is all I knew. Uh, it didn't take me long. To, you know, I figured that out immediately that... Uh, uh, that this would be a setup, and uh, I had no interest in lying, I had no interest in giving the in false information to the president, uh, and didn't. Uh, but he presses me on that. There, there were actually three phases of the cover-up for me. I initially thought I was just helping out my colleagues and didn't see anything criminally amiss. Uh, defense funds were not unusual at that time. Uh, not announcing them didn't sound horrible to me. Uh, I didn't get, see any quid pro quo in, in anything. Nothing struck me amiss at this point. As I say, I'm not trained as a criminal lawyer either. Now when you say but defense funds, what do you mean? Defense funds, the Berrigan brothers for the, uh, had a defense fund. The Chicago... Oh, you're talking about for criminal, yeah. For, for criminal for legal defense, things, right? yeah. And, and that's what... Actually, Nick, there's a tape of Nixon suggesting that there be a defense fund set up uh, for the Cubans... Uh, who had been hired by Hunt and Liddy uh, to pay their lawyers' fees and what have you. If he had done that openly, he might have avoided obstructing justice. It's very curious. And it, it, Haldeman and Ehrlichman dropped that. I never heard about that. In fact, when I first hear about it, uh, I don't know what he's really know what he's talking about. Uh, anyway, phases of the cover-up for me, I initially don't think I'm engaging in criminal conduct. When I realize I am, is after the election, Howard Hunt calls Chuck Colson, and Colson records the call on a dictaphone. He had his phone hooked up to a dictaphone, as many did in the White House, and he brought this uh, tape down to me to play of his conversation with Hunt. And he's proud as punch of this conversation because Colson, it, Colson is, because it exonerates him in the Watergate, that he had nothing to do with the Watergate break-in. Uh, I hear something very different. Uh, I hear Hunt demanding that he get paid sooner rather than later, that pr promises have been made to him to take care of him, they haven't been delivered, and the ready isn't there. Uh, I immediately say to Chuck, this is very bad, Chuck. Uh, he said, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. What I did do is take the tape up to Haldeman and Ehrlichman and played it for them. They said... Uh, take it to John Mitchell and get him to solve the problem, which I th next did that same day and took it up to New York and played it for Mitchell, whose first reaction is, don't you ever have anything good news to report? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, John, I don't. Uh, anyway, it's after listening to that conversation, I let my fingers do the walking in the criminal code to figure out what in the world are we doing? And I discovered... Uh, 18 U.S.C. 1503, which is the obstruction statute, and I discover 18 U.S.C. 371, the conspiracy statute, and I realize we're in a whole lot of trouble. Now, 
you might have thought that your first reaction would be to run for the hills. I mean, I had exactly the opposite reaction. That's when I double down. That's when I try to make the cover-up work. I know today, psychologically, what was going on. I was in what they call the loss frame, uh, where you have no attractive options and you do stupid things. Uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunately part of human nature. Happens a lot to a lot of people. Uh, I don't Did you out, feel a loyalty personally to any of these people? Had you developed any kind of closeness with them I, as a person? I, I, as a co-conspirator, <laughs> yes, I did. I wanted the cover-up to work at that point. And that's when I do dumb things like destroy documents. Uh, knowing, and you did? Yes. Uh, you know, and, and, and I never understood for years you know, what had happened. Then the last phase of, of my involvement in the cover-up is when Hunt sends a message to me uh, that he's going to have seamy things to say about John Ehrlichman, and by implication Bud Krogh, one of his assistants, uh, regarding his break-in at the Ellsberg uh, psychiatrist's office uh, fiasco, uh, that's when I sort of say, my God, this is never going to end. Uh, we're being extorted. Uh, it, there will be no end in it. It's, this cover-up is not going to work. And it's, we've got to figure out how to stop it and get the president out in front of it. And that's March 19th when that word comes in. Uh, I have by then started to have enough dealings with the president that I think he's got trust in me. And so on March, the morning of March 21st, I go in uh, after setting it, breaking precedent, because you weren't supposed to go to the president other than through Haldeman. Uh, when he called me that night, I said, Mr. President, I really need to talk to you. And he said, how about 10 o'clock? I said, fine, I'll be there. Uh, I called Holloman that morning and said, I need to go in and lay it out to the president. He really doesn't get it. I don't know if Holloman understood what I was talking about or not, but he said, fine, you do what you think is necessary. I went in and tried to give him enough back, given the benefit of the doubt that he didn't know anything. I know today he knew almost, he knew virtually everything. Uh, but I took him through each step and every time I would raise one of the problems, he'd have an answer. Uh, I'd raise, for example, uh, Bud Krogh uh, is worried he's committed perjury. Nixon's response, well, John, perjury is a tough rap to prove. I, I, I raised the fact that Hunt was demanding $120,000 yesterday. Uh, he wanted 50000 for uh, his attorney's fees and seventy for his living expenses and what have you because he had by then been convicted. What's the line, Nixon, the famous line? We could get the money if we had to. That's exactly that the line. Yeah. That's, you're coming to it. And I said, Mr. President, I have no idea how much this might cost. And he said, well, what do you think? What, what, you know, give me an estimate. And I pulled out of thin air what I thought was a hefty number. I said a million dollars. That would be, what, about five and a half today. Uh, never having tried to even con you know, calculate what it might be. And that's when he said, that's no problem. I know where we can get that. I know where uh, we can get that. And what I didn't know is that when, until I actually did, did this book, uh, with all the tapes, is after that conversation, he goes over to Rose Wood's door, which is adjoining his office, the Oval Office, and asks Rose in, in a voice you can hear on the tapes, uh, how much is in the slush fund? Uh, <laughs> there's 600,000. He will 
within a week or so be selling an ambassadorship to raise money. He's on the job. Uh, he's going he's gonna to solve this. He's going to get the million bucks and say, take care of it. If John Dean was the ultimate Nixon insider, essayist and satirist Louis Lapham was the ultimate outsider, despite their shared patrician roots. Lapham skewered the administration and its Watergate troubles from behind the covers of Harper's Magazine, where he was the managing editor throughout the scandal. I never liked or trusted Nixon. I came out of the, uh, you know, the affluent, privileged... Uh, San Francisco society. San Francisco society. My, my father had been very strongly in favor of Roosevelt in 1932. Hear my conversation with Louis Lapham at heresthething.org. Coming up, more from Richard Nixon's White House counsel on lessons from Watergate for Trump and the rest of us. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Now, more of my conversation with John Dean. When you talk about this period, you say that I'm going to stop this or I'm, I'm having my doubts because the cover-up you don't think is going to work. Would you have kept going if you thought the cover-up would work? The, you know, the pres- at the end of my March 21st cancer on the presidency, where I, I used that phrase to get his attention, and I had it uh, after that. Um, I, was, I, was, I think that's the day I met Richard Nixon, the real Nixon. Uh, because I took him through one problem after another problem after another problem, waiting for his fist or hand to come down on the desk and say, this has got to stop. Uh, that, isn't, that isn't the man I met that morning. He had answers for everything and that it had to continue, that somebody should take care of this problem with Hunt, uh, and uh, that there was no short-term answer. He wanted the cover-up to go on. I had nothing to do with, uh, with Hunt getting paid. He did get paid. Mitchell took care of it. Uh, and Hunt would remain a bought man until uh, the Watergate prosecutor is trying, Haldeman and Ehrlichman and, and Mitchell, in the cover-up trial in October of 1974. Uh, which is quite remarkable. And then he would decide uh, that he would tell the truth. And he was the, the Perry Mason witness that came into the trial and nobody knew was going to arrive and, and uh, explain what the Watergate break-in was, how things had operated, and was very candid and very honest. You mentioned the three phases of the cover-up. Did you cover all three of those or was there another one? I did. The last okay. phase was ending the, trying to end the cover-up and realizing the only way I could end it and telling my colleagues, I'm going to the prosecutors. This has got, you know, we've got to f- deal with this. We need criminal lawyers in here. Uh, I'm going to hire a criminal lawyer. And Who'd you hire? I hired a, a college, a law school classmate initially uh, to talk about it, a man who later became the chief judge of the uh, federal district court in D.C., Tom Hogan, uh, and we talked about it, and he suggested Charlie Schaffer, who had worked here in the Southern District, uh, was a, a very accomplished uh, prosecutor and had become a very successful uh, criminal defense lawyer, and he was terrific. Uh, I, that would, I, for a while, had one foot in the White House and one foot out of the White House, but didn't hide it from my colleagues what I was doing either. 
You're a very young man when this is happening, and you're married. I mean, we talked backstage about how your wife becomes kind of a bit player of the whole thing. As you said, the camera found her, <laughs> uh, your beautiful wife, Maureen Dean, and, and she was there. Uh, she was, had a huge influence on me. Uh, I want you to explain that. A huge influence. What, what, what was the anxiety uh, you know, when you I, went home every day? You know, I did not want to get married, but I did not want to lose her. Uh, I had been married uh, and divorced and had a child from that first marriage and I had fallen in love with her and we'd had a, uh, a wonderful relationship. She wanted to get married uh, and I just knew this was a, a bad time. I didn't know how bad it was. <laughs> you got married how much? When did you get married? I got married in October of 1972. Wow. Very bad time. Yeah. Uh, we have now been married 45 years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it... <laughs> You know, the, you know, the first time that happened to me uh, was not long ago when I, when I said that to somebody. I happened to be in Nashville uh, giving a talk uh, because of Jim Neal, who was one of the Watergate special prosecutors. They became lifetime friends, many of these guys, and one woman. And I, his former law firm, he's deceased now, but his former law firm had a program, and I came down to speak, and th there was a boys' school there, uh, it's a very fine uh, academy, and they asked me to come out and do their assembly, and 700 kids filed in, and I somehow in passing mentioned that I had been married to Maureen 45 years, and the kids broke out in, in applause, and I thought, isn't that nice? I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I was very pleased. You can't imagine what that's like. You know? <laughs> <laughs> to be married for 45 years. You're like, what? Um, really? Now, when you go home, I mean, I'm trying to get you to talk about something just in terms of your personal feelings and your emotional life. Were you going home and, uh, you know, and having dinner with your wife and sitting having a, a drink and saying, what the hell am I going to do? Or did you try to protect her and not confide her? I protected her. her. I, you know, I tried to warn You're her. Like there in the would mafia. Be... You don't tell you, even your wife <laughs> what's going on. I, I tried to explain to her there were going to be problems, uh, but I wasn't terribly... Uh, we just in, got married. You had to kind of keep everything in, on the down low In, in depth yeah. about it. Uh, uh, I must, somebody recently asked me, how did I get through it all? And my answer was vodka. <laughs> so you did not confide a great deal in her? No, I didn't. You didn't? None, none, you know, it's interesting. None of the men talked to their wives about what was going on. I'm sure more lamps would have been over heads if uh, uh, some of the women had learned about what was going on and when it was going on. I think all the wives were, were shocked at some of this. But anyway, as I said, she had a tremendous influence on me. When I decided to break rank, uh, one of the reasons was I didn't want to disappoint her. Right. Uh, I wanted to live up to the standard she thought. March 16th is when you said the meeting was with him, cancer on the presidency? Uh, March 21st. March 21st. And how soon after that or do you get canned? Uh, end of April. There so it's, is very, a, it's very tight. It's tight, later. but what, the, the tapes are fascinating. The, the tapes, uh, my editor happens to be here tonight, and he helped me tremendously. To, uh, there were four, I ended up with, with four million words in 23 thick notebooks of transcripts that we had to bring down to, to narrative and dialogue. And when I got to those tapes in, in that period at the end, after I'd given him the cancer on the presidency, the conversations are 
so repetitive. I mean, they just go over and over trying to figure out how to deal with me. What are they going to do? And generally, the only answer is to make me the scapegoat. He's afraid of me. When he lets Haldeman and Ehrlichman go, he just in a one sentence says, and so is White House counsel John Dean. Uh, no, no shots at me at all. Uh, because when I get in there, I start telling him things he doesn't even know. He didn't know until I tell him on March 17th that there had been the break-in at Ellsberg's psychiatrist's office and Ehrlichman had been behind it. Uh, Ehrlichman had never shared this with him. The reason I'm convinced those men never got pardons by Nixon when he was on his way out the door is he figured out that they really hadn't kept him informed uh, and they had their own agenda and they were protecting themselves. I actually tried to get everybody to flip inside. Uh, I, thought that was, I thought that would be so sobering for Nixon uh, and everybody else could just stand up and take responsibility that his presidency... You tried. I, I tried. Uh, did you get close to anyone? Uh, I think some people did, you know, based on the tapes. Uh, there is some indication that people did give it some thought. Um, but they realized that uh, uh, it was the end of their careers. So in 1970, if you begin working in the White House in 1970, and now we're in the spring of 73, which is an eternity to be in the White House for a couple of years for some people, the, uh, do you notice, uh, and I want to preface this with something, do you notice the old Nixon returning? Because there's Nixon, as everybody knows, who's the vice president for two terms under Eisenhower, not somebody who was adored by the uh, staff of the White House and the Eisenhower administration. He was, their heavy, he was Eisenhower's heavy. I mean, that's, he, he had the job of going out and being the hatchet man right, and being right. the attack dog. And then he, and then he, uh, uh, and, and then he obviously loses a, a couple of elections, most notably the... Uh, the presidential election in 1960. I mean, the, the, Nixon has always been somebody who's a, a bitter, bitter, uh, you know, type who, is this what you begin to see? I mean, Nixon wins a, election in 68. He wins re-election in 72 by a landslide. And you're in that room with him in the spring of 73. And is this the old Nixon with his I, back well, against I, the wall? What I realize is that the old Nixon has never gone away. Right. He's always been there. What they've done very effectively is portray a new Nixon. You know, in doing the book where I listened to all these conversations, as I was telling my editor tonight, the, I, I didn't wear hearing aids before that uh, experience. I made the mistake of having earphones on, which destroyed my hearing, and I told Mo at one point, God forbid the last voice I hear is Richard Nixon oh in this project. <laughs> But, but I, when I was listening to these tapes occasionally, I would, in queuing them up, would find things that I thought that the archives had removed. They theoretically have taken out all the personal material uh, and returned it to the Nixons. But there are some very personal conversations. Like, for example, in uh, January of 73, he learns that he, uh, from a, a lower aid, that he, indeed, they may have peace in Vietnam. The first person he calls is not Henry Kissinger. He calls Pat Nixon. They have a lovely conversation. Uh, it really struck me that their marriage was much different than I had perceived it, uh, and that she, you know, is, is pleased with him, proud of him. Uh, it's a lovely husband-wife conversation. Same thing happened to occasionally when I found conversations with... 
the president and his daughters, Tricia and Julie, they're some really nice conversations. I'm sure that family was stunned when, they, when these tapes came out, and that's probably one of the reasons he spent so much of his life after even leaving to try to prevent the tapes from ever all surfacing. One of the reasons Nixon covers up is he's worried about John Mitchell. It becomes very clear from the tapes. Uh, it's not that he's worried about his own guilt. He's not worried about the Ellsberg break-in. He's worried about the imp impact it's going to have on his attorney general, John Mitchell, who he thinks will never survive it and can't handle it. So he's trying to protect Mitchell. Different people have different motives at different times along the way. So uh, you, you finally get canned by Nixon himself when? No, well, I, I'm out of town on April 30th when he gives a speech. So he didn't fire you face-to-face? -face. No. no. On, on April 16th, he called me in and said, I think you, uh, we need to talk about resignation, and I've drafted a couple letters. Well, I knew he hadn't written the letters, and I immediately read them, and they were confessions. Uh, and I said, this is obviously uh, John Ehrlichman's handiwork. <laughs> so <laughs> I took them back. I took the letters, and I said, Mr. President, I'll write my own letter and send it to you, and, and which I did. Uh, so uh, this event in American history obviously is chronicled in famous books and famous um, movies made of those books. And I was wondering, when you first see All the President's Men, which comes out pretty quickly after the movie, it doesn't... It, doesn't, it does. The well, book and the film are, are, are come out like within a couple of years or yes. 18 months. What did you think of the film when you first saw it? I first saw uh, a director's showing of it. Alan Pakula had a showing and invited me. And after, you know, there were 50 people in a little uh, theater... Uh, after the movie, I went, went up to him and said, thank you. And he said, why are you thanking me? I said, I'm thanking you for not mentioning my name anywhere in the movie. <laughs> and he said, that's not possible. I said, you might check, it is possible. I said, even when that ticker goes across at the end and gets all the names that it has not otherwise involved, my name is not mentioned. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting. That's but he didn't change it. He didn't go back and add my name. <laughs> but you appreciated the film. You thought it was accurate? I, th I, think it's a, I think it's a slice of the story from the media point of view. Uh, you don't drive by the Jefferson or Lincoln Memorial every time you cross Washington, though, as you know. <laughs> right. What about Nixon, about Oliver Stone's film, which you were a consultant on? I was correct? a consultant on, on Nixon. And That's a far more turgid movie than all the presidents. It, you know, it's much more than Watergate. And, and what, what happened is uh, originally Oliver had in that movie a conspiracy theory that claimed that Watergate was about a break-in at the Democratic National Committee to, uh, to expose a Colgo ring uh, that my wife worked at. Uh, and I had already sued the publishers of that story and was in litigation, which would go on for nine years. So you're saying your wife did not work at the Colgo, right? Yeah, she did not work at the Colgo. I just want to be clear. She did not work at the Colgo. <laughs> I don't want anybody walking out here with any misconceptions. Right? <laughs> People might dream that, but... <laughs> right. uh, anyway, the, um, uh, I told Oliver, I said that this is a fraud and, uh, and you'll end up being named in the lawsuit. Anyway, we, we got off to that start, and he said, I don't want to do that sort of thing in this movie. He said, I am trying to get as much verisimilitude as possible. And what do you think he captured that was accurate about Nixon? 
Uh, Name a scene, because I mean, I, well, I devoured I'll, I'll, that film. One of the times. scenes, the last scene I objected to uh, was a scene where he has me meeting with Howard Hunt on the Memorial Bridge. And I said, Oliver, that never occurred. Ed Harris. It, Ed Harris, right. It's a great scene. And, and you're played by uh, uh, David... Uh, Hyde Pierce. David Hyde Pierce. Yeah. Uh, and I, I said, Oliver, that scene never happened. He said, I've paid for it. It's going to happen. <laughs> 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 how many people applaud if you've ever seen Oliver Stone's Nixon? Never seen that film. Oh my God! Those I, scenes you know, with I, those guys. I, I thought I thought that uh, I can actually suspend disbelief with a Anthony Hopkins. I think I know you admire him greatly. Oh yeah. Uh, and I've met him when he came back from a tour of the Nixon Library with Oliver and they had kind of slipped through with nobody seeing them, but one of the docents spotted them at the end of the tour, and she said to, to Hopkins, who was reporting this to me at lunch, right after they had come back, he said, uh, the docent stopped me and said, I understand you're playing Mr. Nixon. And he said, yes, I am. And, and he said, uh, and she said to him, he said, well, I hope you're not doing a job on him. And he turned to me and said, I'm not doing a job on him, am I? I said, I don't think so in this script. And he said, well, he said, I want to tell you, I kind of sympathize with Nixon. He said, I... I Tony said that. Tony said that. He said, I grew up in very humble beginnings, and like Nixon, I could hear the train whistles and have dreams. And he said, I, you know, I want to play this guy straight, and, and, and that's what I think he tried to do. I, he had, I noticed, I was visited the set a number of times, and they had a voice coach for him there, and they tried to take that clip out of his accent, uh, and they don't always, but that's the only thing that sort of distracts me with him. I can believe this is Richard Nixon. He's I thought he did a sensational he, He's really, uh, uh, tries to capture the man. With the time we have left, I want to ask you, obviously, about uh, the comparisons and contrasts to uh, how we live our lives now. And uh, it's unlikely that a Republican-controlled Judiciary Committee in this particular Congress is going to return an article to impeach. Uh, I think that's very true. Yeah, the, 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 but well, what they you'll have then a, have is you'll have a president, a sitting president, who's indicted for a crime. Well, it's not possible right now to indict a sitting president. What happened is, in 1973, Spiro Agnew was being pursued by, the, by a grand jury out of uh, Maryland, and they went to the Department of Justice. For tax evasion, correct. For tax evasion. And he claimed he couldn't be indicted, he could only be impeached. Uh, they took the question to the Office of Legal Counsel, which issues those sort of opinions by the Department of Justice, and said, no, Mr. Vice President, you're wrong. You can be indicted. Uh, it's the president who can't be indicted, can only be impeached, and issued an opinion in 73. That opinion was upgraded or, or revised and readopted in 2000. Uh, when uh, Robert Ray, uh, independent, last one, one of the last independent counsels, raised that issue regarding Clinton and said, no, he cannot be indicted as a sitting president. So that's the policy right now of the Department has of the Justice. Has the court itself ever ruled on that? No, no court has ever ruled on it, and, and many scholars disagree with it, that they think that no president's above the law, and indeed the 25th Amendment makes it possible to have the president step aside, uh, who would be impaired in his ability to uh, govern and right. function if he was in a criminal trial, and to sort that out, uh, it, it could be done. Uh, the issue has not been resolved. There are some who think that uh, special counsel Mueller might uh, 
uh, tested. What do you think Mueller would do? You're a lawyer. Uh, have a fascinating case. <laughs> it, it's, it's a tough issue. I, I, you know, I, um, there are arguments on both sides, but I think that the bottom line argument is that no person in this country is above the law. I mean, the country right now, it seems like it's in so much trouble. You know, the country is in so much trouble. And you've got people I, who I have are, never had a knot in my stomach before, before an election. I did before this election. Right. I've, that knot has really never gone away. Right. Just the damage that Pruitt and DeVos alone will do in their departments is going to take a decade or more to undo. You know, it just the things are really bad. And too little attention is being paid to what's happening out in those departments and agencies. Right. And uh, Most striking to me... Alec, is the fact that he is, has no competence for the job. He has no training. Right. He, did no, he has no knowledge of the office. Uh, he's winging it uh, from day to day. Um, he's got a constituency that uh, uh, is unshakable for lots of reasons. I think he was, he was shocked to win, uh, unprepared to govern, and, but, but is growing into the job as he learns it. He's learning it on the spot. I, what worries me is he is going, he's not dumb, he's going to learn how the machinery works, and then I think it's ripe for even greater abuse. Well, that's what my ultimate question is, is that, is that do you think, because I've said this to people before, that, that to remove the President of the United States from office is a tremendously difficult. painful and difficult thing, but it's also painful for the country. Yes. Do you believe that what's best for the country is to not impeach Trump? and to wait until the next election cycle and vote him out of office? Or do you think impeachment is a healthy path for the country? I think it's, a, I think it's a, uh, an appropriate path because it's, it's a constitutional path. If the system is designed to deal with a president who is not uh, playing the game as it's supposed to be played. And that's a determination made by the House of Representatives, which is the closest to the people. Uh, is the House. While we might have a highly gerrymandered House... Uh, we got a Paul Ryan House, too. <laughs> right. Uh, Who's his little bat boy. I'm not, I'm not sure that... I'm not sure... I think uh, the next election, the off-year election, is going to be very telling in 2018. See, I wonder if they, if they get swamped in the, in, the, in the midterm and you come out the other side of that into January of 2019 and... Uh, if Pence were to succeed a, uh, a Trump that resigns, Pence would want to come in right after January uh, of 2019. So he was eligible for 10 years in office. Because if he steps, if they impeach Trump now, Pence is only eligible for that piece of Trump's term and only one full term of his own. Well, you're assuming he could get reelected. I, I think this is going to splash over on Pence. I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't refute that. I'm just saying that, but that right now, in their hope, is that uh, they're, they're going to wait and see what the damage is in the midterm if, if Trump can be rehabilitated. I thought Trump would be gone by the summer. I thought they'd say to themselves, we've got to get the smell of the cordite out of the room here and bring Pence in here and let everything clear, if not for 2018, then for 2020, and prop up Pence as the, as the nominee. But they've hung in with him. But I don't think Trump has that idea of leaving either. He likes the attention. He likes the fact he can demand the kind of... Uh, 24-7 coverage he gets. His narcissism is large enough to handle that. 
Are you a Republican now? I haven't been since then. You haven't? <laughs> really? I'm an independent. You're an independent. In California, we don't have to declare. And I, and I have not declared. And I have voted uh, uh, both Republican both and Democrat. What do, you think is gonna, what do you think is the future of the Republican Party? Bad. Bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah bad. Bad. We were going to do a sketch on SNL the other day where Trump was going Christmas shopping with Roy Moore at the mall. <laughs> we didn't. You know... They killed that idea. The, 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 the greatest mistake I've made since Watergate was when Lauren sent out a feeler if I would host Saturday night. And, it's not too and, late. It's and, not and, too and, late. And, and Saturday night, or, or Simon & Schuster said, no, we don't want you doing that. Uh, it's a very tough, tough, uh, painful time for this country right now because I think that, uh, I think we need both parties to be healthy and not have an effective opposition. And that's one of the things that saddens me about this Republican Party is they're going down the drain with this insane Well, there's a difference between opposition and polarization. And we don't seem to have distinguished that. Uh, when when uh, when majority doesn't rule, uh, we're in trouble in a democracy. And right now, a minority is controlling the country. Well, I want to say, uh, please go ahead. Well, I want to say I'm grateful. Uh, I'm sure you've heard this before too. That I'm grateful that you found your conscience. Uh, back then in March of 1973 and uh, did the right thing coming out of Camp David and uh, uh, exposed what you did, told the truth about what you did. And uh, I want to say thank you very much for coming and sitting with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. John Dean, whose life was forever changed by the bungled break-in to the Watergate Hotel in 1972, I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's The Thing Comes from WNYC Studios.